This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So what I'm going to do today is sort of a, a little compilation of some very recent uh, research that I've been involved with and led um, just to uh, to kind of give you an introduction to uh, to what I've been thinking about, and particularly in the last 14 years, one component of what I've spent a, a much of my time um, doing is is trying to learn more about how to diagnose autism in particular in very young children as well as uh, older children and adolescents, and. Um, and training others to do this. And um, the, when you have to teach other people about certain things, whether it be um, pretty basic sorts of things that professors oftentimes do or more complex types of, um, of topics, then it really forces you to, to be honest and to also challenge um, certain types of, of things. So I've learned a lot from the people that I've um, had the opportunity to train about um, some of the things that I've, I've learned from others. I'm going to talk a little bit, therefore, about this diagnostic challenge when it comes to autism spectrum disorder, um, a little bit about our challenges with looking, at, looking for autism, looking for causes, and then um, one particular study that's been recently published uh, by myself and my colleagues on Jacobson syndrome, and, um, and also a bit about my uh, work on trying to bridge the gap from research settings to the community, particularly when it comes to diagnosis. So um, I, I had the opportunity to talk with uh, the fellows and the graduate students, as I said, um, over lunch today. And one of the things that we talked about was this um, change from how we had thought about autism um, in the in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual DSM-4, we had these different types of diagnostic um, terms: autistic disorder, PDD, NOS, and Asperger's disorder. And these were defined on the basis of these this triad of impairments of social interaction, communication, restricted or repetitive behavior, and. Um, as researchers use these terms and, and um, try to apply them in a variety of different studies, and as people in the community use these, these diagnostic terms to divide up children who had many common features um, with the core understanding around the, this term of autistic disorder, we found that this led to a lot of complications and challenges. Um, and so that's been part of the reason that uh, the terminology has changed. People started talking about an autism spectrum disorder. Um, and also there was a lot of discussion and debate in the literature about the degree to which we could get uh, good agreement. Because we, what we found over you know, studies of hundreds of children was that there, it was difficult to get good agreement using the specific types of di diagnostic criteria in place under the DSM-IV um, definitions, uh, particularly when it came to Asperger's disorder and then this more nebulous term of PDD-NOS. Um, we, had, we have used these terms in our research studies, as many other groups have, um, but when I spoke with people in the community, there was obviously a lot of confusion and a lot of debate, and from a clinical perspective, this led to big challenges in terms of who would get services given different types of definitions and, and terminology. 
And so we've moved away from this way of thinking about autism and related conditions to this, um, this umbrella term, if you will, of autism spectrum disorder, where things have been um, uh, now combined into these two major domains of um, social communication interactions and the same term of restricted and repetitive behavior. And this is interesting because one of the reasons that the terminal, these, these definitions or these criteria have changed is because researchers found that it was very difficult to really justify having social interaction deficits separate from communication issues, um, that these were often really highly correlated and in, in terms of how communication, language skills, etc., are affected in children that were given a diagnosis of a pervasive developmental disorder, that these, these tended to overlap significantly and were highly intercorrelated. And so through the basis of using those criteria and looking at the data, uh, researchers decided that uh, we're going to we're going to make this a little bit more simple. Of course, this has been controversial in terms of what this might mean for including children under this definition or having to exclude them under having uh, by the virtue of having to meet criteria for social communication interaction in all those areas, and then um, the area of restricted repetitive behavior being a little bit expanded in terms of the diagnosis and the criteria. Um, so in preparing for this talk and in sort of thinking about these things, you know, I, I realized that I, I wondered, why do people use this term spectrum? Um, I mean, I know about visual spectrums and, and those sorts of things, and, um, and, and I didn't know really that, that the term spectrum, and when it comes to different kinds of conditions, is that the idea being that it might not be a unitary disorder, but a syndrome composed of subgroups. And certainly when I think about children that I see uh, from a variety of ages and levels of severity of symptoms and abilities, and in speaking with parents about what I think this diagnosis means or what this condition means, I often talk about it as a syndrome. That, that means that there are there's a variety of different kinds of behaviors that are affected. They're not affected in exactly the same way in every child that we give this diagnosis to, um, but that there is some commonality that we say these children seem to share these core symptoms or enough commonality that, that we can group them together and say that they there's something that seems to hold them together as a group that makes them different from children with other types of challenges um, and that this is different from other aspects of um, variations across the population. Um, so from a perspective of looking at underlying causes or um, better understanding the mechanisms of how is development therefore different in children that share these, these sorts of uh, features, um, you can see that using this kind of a definition that's not a unitary disorder means that there's, there's a lot um, to be learned and that there's probably many different mechanisms here. Um, and this is, you know, many people have talked about this. Uh, and, and sometimes I feel very discouraged where I say, well, then how are we ever going to figure this out if um, we're talking about such a complex syndrome with many potential causes and, and outcomes? Um, but I think it's important to keep this in mind. So again, under this term of autism spectrum disorder that there are clinically significant persistent deficits 
in social communication and interactions, and these include deficits in nonverbal and verbal communication that are used for social interaction, that all children with this diagnosis have to have, they have to meet that type of criteria, that there's this lack of social reciprocity or I don't really like the term lack um, in so much as you know relative deficits or significant deficits in social reciprocity and a failure to maintain and develop peer relationships. So those, those features all go in. Um, they must be present for the DSM diagnosis. And then we have the area of restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests or, or activities, um, some of the characteristic features that, that have been associated with the core definition of autism, but under DSM-5 have also included um, the overreaction or hyperreactivity or hyporeactivity under reaction to sensory input um, or different aspects of sensory um, input from the environment. Um, so even within the definition under DSM-5, there's greater consensus, if you will, in terms of the kinds of uh, social communication dif difficulties that um, must be present to meet criteria for this syndrome, but there's a bit of flexibility in terms of the range or the types of restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interest, or activities. Um, and many people have wondered, you know, well, how, why do these things kind of go together? Uh, is there some sort of common thread that, that helps us understand social difficulties with these restricted repetitive patterns of behavior? And that's, that's a sort of a psychological debate or a philosophical debate, if you will. Um, part of it, I think, is um, at some level there's a commonality of difficulty being flexible, um, having difficulty with flexibility, which is required for so many aspects of early developmental function, particularly social um, interactions, but that's not quite enough um, to explain all these things. Um, I've also gone back to uh, slides that I've been showing to students for a really long time. Um, when we think about uh, neurodevelopmental disorders in general, but this is, this is becoming more and more clear, I think, as we study more about autism spectrum disorder, that again, there are different underlying causes um, that can lead to a very similar type of outcome at a very general type of level. Um, but then there is also the, the fact that even within neurodevelopmental disorders, or that there can be a similar type of cause that, that could lead to variations in outcome. And why is that if there's, a, if there's a commonality in terms of biological causes, whether they be genetic um, or other combinations of factors? And that's because there's so many other pieces that are um, a part of the development of the child, from my perspective at least, um, in terms of the, uh, the, the other factors that go into variations across individuals. They're, we call it background genetics, um, as well as their environmental uh, differences, reactions to, to environmental influences, and, um, and how they may get different kinds of interventions at different points in development that can lead to different variations in terms of outcome, even though there might be some real core commonalities in, in terms of an underlying cause. Um, and so I think that when, when I think about um, understanding more about the causes of autism and understanding that there's uh, a lot of genetic and etiology, uh, heterogeneity in terms of genetics and etiology, um, that, uh, that it's not unexpected that we might have these these, there's a spectrum disorder, there's these differences across individuals, 
Um, but it's important to think about not only these genetic variations that might account for what we see in terms of this diagnosis, um, but that those genetic differences, of course, are uh, contributing to fundamental uh, differences in terms of developing brain um, of young children. And even in my, my research with my colleagues and looking at typical brain development, we know that there's, um, there's these final common pathways, but there's a tremendous amount of variation across individuals in how they finally reach that point of maturation. And from the very beginning, um, there are significant effects in terms of the environment on the developing brain and how um, there are, that account for variations. And this is a picture of, um, of just individual you know, differences in terms of how an individual neuron might look under uh, different environmental circumstances using animal models. Um, and then uh, from the early origins of brain development going through these, uh, these vast white matter track pathways that we see um, uh, and that are affected in autism, that this can have a big effect um, in terms of uh, behavior and development at many different levels. Um, so despite the diversity of causes uh, for autism spectrum disorder, it is plausible that there are real similarities in how brain development might be affected, which in turn, through a variety of different mechanisms, might help to account for why we see some of the, um, the behaviors, uh, the commonalities in terms of, of behavior that's affected. Um, and uh, even with different underlying effects, early social communication skills and behavior might be affected in very similar ways, resulting in some of these similar types of phenotypes. So I thought that I would talk a little bit about this project that, um, that I was involved with, um, with a rare genetic syndrome called Jacobson syndrome. And um, this was not something that I had even heard of before, I have to say. Um, it's uh, reported to uh, occur in probably one in 100,000 cases. Um, it's a two-to-one uh, female-to-male ratio uh, in terms of the presentation of cases of children with Jacobson syndrome. Um, it's like many other types of uh, genetic syndromes in which there are uh, some characteristic features that, are, again, are not necessarily universal across all children with this uh, syndrome, um, but some of the common features that we see are um, pre- and postnatal physical growth uh, retardation. Many of the children are quite short or small in stature. Um, they, many of them have um, pretty significant intellectual impairments. Um, as, a, as a group, most of them meet criteria for an intellectual disability. There's a characteristic facial dysmorph dysmorphic features that you can see in this little boy. Um, uh, that varies uh, across individuals. And then there are uh, effects across many different systems in terms of um, cardiac difficulties, um, kidney, uh, gastrointestinal difficulties, as well as the central nervous system being affected. Um, many of these children have uh, visual disturbances and, and some degree of hearing loss as well. But there's a lot of variation across these children. And um, why, why would I study, why would anybody study autism in Jacobson syndrome? Well, sometimes these things just sort of come upon you um, and you get lured in. So for me, um, I had the, the fortune of 
uh, one of my colleagues, Sarah Matson, who's in psychology at San Diego State University, she had been uh, invited to participate in a study of Jacobson syndrome with one of our colleagues, Paul Grossfeld, who's a pediatric cardiologist at UC San Diego. So he had originally um, started studying these, these patients along with some other colleagues because of the, the cardiac defects um, that were present in many of these children. And in their work, as they looked more, more specifically at the degree of deletion um, in the 11Q uh, part of the, of the uh, in the 11Q chromosome, um, they found that with the larger deletion size across the children that they were seeing, that that seemed to be correlated with the degree of intellectual impairment that, that was present um, in the children. Um, which may not necessarily be that surprising, but um, but was uh, but was a nice uh, finding. Um, what happened was that as since these children are fairly rare, um, they're they're hard to find. Paul Grossfeld is incredibly um, devoted and um, and ambitious and just a very kind uh, person. He um, offered to sort of network across the world uh, with families uh, who had been identified with this syndrome. And what we've done in the last several years, I joined this team in 2008, is every two years, uh, families from around the world are invited to come to San Diego and uh, participate in our research. And in turn, uh, they have the opportunity to network with other families. And we provide a series of talks for the families uh, to give them information, particularly each two years is pretty amazing. More, more findings have emerged and we're able to share um, more information with the families as well as provide them some real practical support from helpful therapists and parents about what, how can you deal with some, many of the very practical issues of having a child with multiple disabilities. Um, and it's been really fascinating uh, to sort of see how this works, to have parents group together um, to, uh, to work to help fund research because we don't have any grants to do this re- this work. Um, most of us have done it out of, you know, I do it sort of pro bono, um, but, um, but also helping us to discover more about not only Jacobson syndrome but other, other types of um, phenomena. Um, so what happened was that a, a, one of the parents contacted Paul Grossfeld and said, um, I've been told that my child seems to have um, autism or seems to have the characteristics of autism. Do you know anything about that? And he said, you know, in his estimation of the children, he's a cardiologist. Um, so he said, well, the children don't seem to be particularly autistic to me. You know, they seem pretty friendly. Um, and, um, and I don't see sort of, I, I'm not sure, but, I, you know, I, I will do what I can to, to kind of look into this further. So that's, so Sarah Matson contacted me and said, would you be willing to, to help us look into this and, you know, maybe better understand, is this just an occasional kind of observation? Many children with complex neurodevelopmental syndromes can show many of these features, um, or is there something else maybe that's going on here? And the nice thing about this particular group and this phenomenon for me is that the idea was really not solely for the purpose of of science, but rather because when you work with families who um, who are you know 
ge- so generous, although it's pretty easy to convince people to come to San Diego in the summertime, you know, and have a vacation and do a little research. Um, but, you know, who are so generous that we sort of felt like, you know, we owed it to them to, to maybe help them to understand this a little bit better and, and offer advice and, and support. Um, so, as I said, elevated rates of autism have been described in a variety of other types of chromosomal deletion syndromes. Um, and uh, when we started this project, uh, you know, I made it clear that we're going to have to do we're going to have to try to do this as carefully as possible because um, some of the researchers here at the Mind Institute have published papers about other types of chromosomal disorders, and and other people in the field of autism have warned that you know. Um, it's not enough to do like a parent questionnaire or to um, to just go on um, simple in, uh, information that uh, particularly for more complex presentations so so what we've done over the course of, of three different um, uh, uh, Conferences has been to, to bring the children in and to do um, a variety of different measures with them. Um, and I have to say that I was very skeptical. I tend to be pretty conservative. Um, I'm not going to just, um, you know, sort of, uh, I, I wanted to be very careful in terms of how we identified the, the kinds of characteristics of these, of these children and uh, sort of test this hypothesis that maybe some of the children have some of the features of autism. Um, many of these children had also, uh, they had seemed to have a higher risk of having attention deficit problems, some behavior problems, particularly as they got older, and anxiety, etc. So, you know, it can be very complicated and confusing, um, particularly with the backdrop of intellectual disability. Um, and so as part of this, this parent organization, the 11Q Research and Resource Group, we have these biennial conferences in San Diego. Um, we also had some families who came to the lab outside of the conference um, because we could only test so many children in the, in the course of a couple of days. And prior to testing, um, we had parents complete a variety of questionnaires, including the social communication questionnaire, which is used as a screening measure uh, for autism. Um, we also had some families who weren't able to travel to San Diego give us as much information as possible, but they aren't included as part of this, um, this paper. Well, there's a, there's, well, there's a couple exceptions, I have to say. Um, but the vast majority of them were children that we saw uh, as part of this study. So as part of the research assessment, we did um, standard cognitive testing, uh, the type of testing that was most appropriate for the child's age as well as level of ability. Um, all, all parents completed a standard interview, the Vinyl Adaptive Behavior Scale, so we could have an idea of their adaptive behavior skills um, as well as sort of the more characteristics of their children. Um, and then I... Um, administered the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, which is a standardized assessment that's used, developed originally for research studies, but is used also in community uh, settings to complement the parent history information that you get uh, where a a skilled observer can look and see is the child uh, exhibiting certain characteristic features of autism uh, where the, the scoring and the challenges are tempered based on the child's language level. Um, and then from uh, m- most of the children, of course, that come to the conference have already had a clinical uh, genetic testing of some sort that defined uh, the deletion, um, but blood samples were obtained from all the children here for more uh, 
comprehensive array, comparative genomic hybridization. I'm not a geneticist, um, so I can only answer certain questions with regard to the, the, um, the more specifics, but we have those included in our paper. Um, and so we, we were able to pull together um, the data that we'd collected over these three conferences um, from the participants that met all of our specific criteria, and this paper was published um, earlier this year in Genetics and Medicine. Um, and you aren't supposed to be able to read all of this uh, because the, the, this is from the, the paper, but um, it helps me to remember that what we did in this study is that we had, um, we had 17 children who, had, who met the, the clinical and genetic criteria for Jacobson syndrome, and all of these children had uh, varying amounts of the 11Q uh, chromosome deleted uh, and it's a terminal deletion um, as part of this, this definition. And here what you can see is um, that there are variations in terms of the deletion size from a small deletion to a larger deletion. Here are the coordinates of the deletion. Um, and as has been described in the literature for children with Jacobson syndrome, we have, unlike most studies of autism, we have more uh, females than males. And the, the relative... Uh, prevalence or percentages of children that we saw is pretty much about a two-to-one ratio. You can also see that because we took all comers, that we have quite a range of age at which we saw the children. So um, the youngest child um, being four years of age, and then we have um, the oldest uh, individuals in this sample are 21 years of age. Um, we have the IQ ranges that are um, fairly low in most of the individuals, and um, as well as their adaptive behavior skills, which tend to be a little bit higher. Um, and what you can see is that on the ADOS, um, you can get a classification of autism or autism spectrum disorder, which is sort of a shorthand for um, uh, the old term in some ways of, of pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, or non-spectrum. And then I made a decision based on the ADOS as well as other pieces of information for a research diagnosis, whether the child seemed to fit within an autism spectrum disorder classification or not. Um, we also had the social communication questionnaire, as I said, and you can see that there's a, a lot of variation in terms of whether the individuals who met criteria, uh, their parents endorsed um, a significant number of symptoms associated with a cutoff that's usually associated with autism. Um, and so, so we had these 17 individuals um, in the study with these pure distal 11Q deletions. Um, and then we also included information from three other um, individuals. And um, I'll say a little bit more about them. And these, all of these individuals were found to meet criteria for ASD using this approach. Um, so eight of the 17 individuals who had these, um, these distal deletions met criteria for autism spectrum disorder, 47%. Um, and there had not been any reports in the literature, the literature is pretty scant on this fairly rare disorder, about autism in this population except for um, one or two case studies that had, that had reported autism in, in, in a child with um, Jacobson syndrome. But part of the, the challenge is that it's partly because people hadn't looked. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's only when you start to sort of look for more complex sorts of behaviors and you have some skill in distinguishing them that you might be able to find um, certain characteristics. 
Um, we had three additional cases who uh, were children who had what are called atypical deletions. So some of the children with Jacobson syndrome who meet the criteria in terms of the, um, the medical and the physical uh, characteristics don't have this sort of a terminal deletion, but they have a, a deletion in the, in the middle of the chromosome. Um, and we had included them as part of our pure group. Um, uh, but they were included as sort of a comparison and also were very uh, informative. Uh, it's interesting to note, for what it's worth, that we had only five males in that group of 17, uh, only f- and four of those five met criteria for ASD. Um, in the females, we had more. Uh, the rest of the, the individuals, the 12 others, were, um, uh, were females, and 33% of them met criteria for autism. So it's, it's curious to me, I don't have an explanation, that even though this genetic syndrome is more common in girls than boys, um, there still seems to be a relatively higher risk, at least in this very small sample, of ASD um, in boys compared to the girls. Um, So this is from the the paper, and what it shows you is that if you look at that that part of the the distal arm of 11Q here, um, this is uh, the patient in that group of 17 who had the smallest deletion here. And, um, and this is the region that is typically associated with deletions consistent with Jacobson syndrome. Here's an individual who has an interstitial deletion where um, it doesn't go all the way to the... Um, oh, I'm sorry. This is, this is not an interstitial deletion, but it, um, it doesn't quite span the region that's typically associated with uh, the full syndrome of Jacobson syndrome. This is a, an individual with an interstitial deletion. And then this is a child who was identified... Um, who has this really teeny tiny little deletion. This, was, um, this child was identified post hoc as the genetics results started to come in um, from uh, our, our samples where uh, what the, re- the, the genetic researchers, not me, found was that there seemed to be an area of overlap across the individuals who met criteria for autism. And this particular child has a deletion in that that specific region. What this picture shows you is that if you look within that very small region, um, here are the genes that are known to be um, within that region. And um, my colleagues have great interest in one particular gene here um, that had formerly been called RICS, R-I-C-S. And we have a paper under review that I can't take credit for, but I've somehow been given some credit for, uh, where some, some colleagues have been very interested in that particular gene, and based on our findings of autism-like behaviors, have, um, have done a variety of different experiments to look at, um, a, at a knockout mouse model of this particular gene and how it might be related to some of the symptoms that, in a mouse model, um, are characteristic of features of autism spectrum disorder. Um, So what isn't known at this point, though, is how brain development is affected in these children with Jacobson syndrome and whether that might have any overlap with the types of brain abnormalities that have been associated with autism. Um, But this particular gene has been um, associated to be found to have importance in terms of um, brain development and and brain uh, and expression properties. So that's why there's particular interest in that that might help us learn more about Jacobson syndrome. Um, so why study autism and Jacobson syndrome? Well, um, the results from the study, as I said, have led to, um, to 
interest among people who are looking at these particular genes, how they might inform us about certain kinds of behaviors that may or may not um, be common or have sort of common pathways to other genes that have been associated with autism. Um, Children with this particular deletion syndrome are probably not included in large genetic studies of kids with autism because they might have been excluded on the basis of having this known chromosomal deletion. Um, but the other part of it is the clinician in me, where, um, as I told you, you know, the family that said that, that somebody had, um, had identified autism um, in their child that they knew already had Jacobson syndrome um, found that, uh, that by those characteristics, their child was able to get um, some helpful services, and they've had a lot of support in terms of the, the behavioral difficulties that they've had as a family. Um, and one of the first children that I saw that I felt convinced really seemed to meet criteria for autism spectrum disorder, the family had not thought about that. No one had ever told them, that, and their son was four at the time, um, but it seemed pretty clear to me. Now, the question, of course, is, is that the same autism as in other children that we see, the, the idiopathic autism, if you will, or non-syndromic autism? I don't know, but um, I think we need larger samples and um, probably a variety of different you know, clinicians to look at these children and see how there might be characteristics that are uh, very similar or, or maybe different qualitatively in some ways. Um, but in that one particular little boy, um, I told the family that I think this, you know, this, these are the characteristics that I see in your son, um, and, uh, and I was able to, to, to give them you know, basically a research report and it's been really delightful to have him come back to San Diego now twice. Um, and they said that has made all the difference in the world um, because they were able to get him specific types of interventions that work with children with autism that have made a huge difference in his life. And he's been able to be included in more mainstream types of activities. He has milder um, medical symptoms, milder, so he doesn't have sort of the dysmorphic features. I don't know, you know what those relationships might be, but it's been a really interesting journey. Um, so now I'm going to shift gears entirely um, to diagnostic practices in the community. And, um, and I got involved in this area of research from being a, a neuropsychologist um, who studies autism and, and uh, works in brain development studies, and I've done work with children with early stroke. Um, I got involved in this really through my work of being the diagnostician for these multidisciplinary studies of autism that I heard story after story about um, what parents had gone through in terms of getting a diagnosis or us being the first step in that process when they entered their child in a research study. Um, and then I, as I became more of an expert in giving the ADOS and, and got certified as a trainer, I started doing um, large trainings for, uh, for practitioners across the country. Um, initially through my work with Kathy Lord and her colleagues and learning how to do these sorts of trainings. Um, but I became very interested in, in hearing the stories about what people do in the community. How do they define autism? What kinds of tools do they use? And the reason that they were coming to these trainings is because they were told you need to do something better, you need to do something more consistent and standardized, and the ADOS is one part of that process in terms of diagnostic practices. Um, 
However, there's a big difference, I think, between using some of these very specialized tools, um, being highly trained, being deemed to be reliable, um, and being able to make these differential types of decisions about autism spectrum disorder from other um, developmental conditions, and simply being trained how to use a tool um, and getting a score. And as much as I try to emphasize that to many of the people that I had trained, um, it's, it's hard to get some people to kind of understand that, and there, there are limits to what people are able to do in the community. Um, so I've been able to do some work where I've followed practitioners in the community, um, see how they use the ADOS, how they make these decisions, and um, sort of the bottom line that's really no surprise is that most people say, I need more training. Um, and they really appreciate having um, experts to, to talk with and problem solve about the tough cases. Um, I have to say, one disheartening episode was in, in following uh, different groups of people and asking them, how they use the ADOS and, and how they feel it's influenced their ability to make these decisions, particularly in school settings. Um, one group of people told me that we only use it when we have really tough cases and we're not sure. And I said, but that's not what we do. We, we use these tools every child that we see in the clinic or in the research setting um, so that we can have a you know, standardized way of looking at them as well as defining these, these conditions and being able to justify our conclusions as, as that piece along with other pieces. Um, and I have to say that you know, lots of times I see kids where I'm very confused and I go to my colleagues and say, here's what I see, you know, what do you think? Um, and that's after having lots of experience. So I think there's much work to be done in terms of how to better enable people in the community to do uh, the tough jobs that they have as well as to rely more on um, experts as, as, as possible. Anyway, um, what we sought out to do was to look at... Um, at how autism spectrum disorders um, could be diagnosed in very young children within um, a community setting. And we, um, we took advantage of our own uh, uh, clinic within Rady Children's um, where there's a group of psychologists who are um, highly skilled um, developmental psychologists, clinicians, uh, who see a wide variety of young children. And many of the children that they see as part of their, um, their practice are children where there's a question of autism, but they see other children with a variety of other developmental concerns as well. And what um, my colleague, Christina Crisello, who's the director of the Autism Discovery Institute, as well as my other colleague, Aubin Stamer, who's you're stealing away from me. She's coming here to join the faculty next month. Um, what we had done was um, when Christina uh, was recruited to San Diego, uh, she and I uh, really tried to encourage the clinicians in this clinic, where at the time both of us also saw patients, to use the ADOS um, in all of their assessments. Um, but these are, these are clinicians who, um, who were not research reliable, um, but had had the standard sort of training. So we thought, well, this would be interesting to see how well um, the tools work in their hands in very young children, which pose lots of challenges in terms of diagnosis, um, as well as uh, as a way to how do we but how do we make some decisions without having seen the children ourselves? 
Um, so the, the primary aims of this study were, were to see how well does the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, perform when used by community cl- clinicians in a young community-based sample. Um, so these were all children that were seen consecutively or across a period of time um, who there was a question of autism, and they were all um, under the age of three, um, most of them between uh, two and a half and three years of age. Um, and does using a parent report measure um, uh, in combination with the ADOS improve diagnostic accuracy in this, in this particular sample? Um, we were at the mercy of whatever the clinicians had done, and um, there, was no con- there was no sort of specific rules, um, but many of the parents had, or many of the clinicians had used the social communication questionnaire, which is a parent report measure that's sort of a, a shorthand for the autism diagnostic interview um, with the families of these young children or the MCHAT. Now, the MCHAT was designed also as a screening tool very brief screener, but not necessarily designed for children in this age range, um, but it was the best that they could come up with. Um, the SEQ, uh, Christina Crisello has done work on how well that works with very young children, um, and there's some difficulties with using the SEQ with young children. But the literature had suggested that um, that there, and in fact Sally Rogers has a nice paper looking at how well um, parent report information is, is an important component of being of adding to the ADOS for identifying with some reliability and validity um, autism in very young children. So we wanted to see how those measures um, also um, held up. Um, what we did is, since we had not seen the children, uh, we used the record review process that was developed by the Centers for Disease Control. Um, that is a, it's called the Records-Based Methodology for ASD Case Definition. Um, this is the, the standard that's been used in these large epidemiological st- studies that have been repeated now um, over time where um, the uh, researchers go in and look at a, a large number of uh, records uh, across a, a sample of individuals within these various communities across the country. And um, this is how they've been trying to estimate prevalence of autism within um, community settings. Um, and so we spent a lot of time with the researchers that are part of that project to learn how they use this, this method um, where you go in and you get all the records that you can find for an individual child and basically sift through the information to see are there, um, are there pieces of data there, observations based on either parent parent interview, um, observations of the clinician, or information obtained from different instruments that seem to fit within the criteria of autism um, diagnosis, and basically check off these things. And regardless of what the clinician might have concluded, do you find enough evidence based on what the clinician has written uh, for caseness? And that's how um, these studies have been conducted. Um, So in looking at the kinds of records that they had, um, it is incredibly frustrating and difficult. If you've read, you know, reports from other clinicians, you you can see where some people sort of can give you a very good view of the of the child, and other people might be very terse and reach a conclusion that you sort of wonder, well, on what basis are you reaching that conclusion? Because I don't see, you know, enough of of sort of a narrative of 
of how uh, you've defined autism and the characteristics of this particular child. Um, so we had the fortune of, of having a group of homogeneous um, clinicians who used a pretty standard approach, but they weren't forced to. That's just sort of the nature of, I think, different social groups. Um, and they all used um, similar types of tools. We were blinded to what the clinician concluded. We were blinded to what the scores were on the ADOS or the parent report measures. Um, but we simply went through what information the clinicians had included based on the child's history, the information obtained from the parent interview, as well as the observations um, that they shared um, from different pieces of data. Um, and so what you can see is that at this time, um, the clinicians were still using DSM-4 criteria. I don't know how things might be different um, if, we, if we looked at this using the autism spectrum disorder um, definition now. Um, I, I imagine that there will be um, some variations. But what you can see here is that across this sample of um, 138 children, um, these, these were all these two-year-olds that came in for uh, an assessment, and these were the conclusions, either autism or autistic disorder, PDDNOS, or non-spectrum, that these are children who had um, some types of developmental delays or not, but they didn't seem to fit within uh, an autism or PDDNOS diagnosis. Um, the children in these three diagnostic groups were, um, were similar in terms of age. You can see that they're on average about 30 months of age. Um, IQs as measured by usually the Bailey um, scales um, were uh, in the low average to um, significantly below average range. Um, that's the characteristics of many young children that come in for an assessment is that there are delays, particularly in language. Um, the children who the clinicians concluded had autism had higher scores on the parent report measure compared to children, of course, in the non-spectrum range, with the kids in the PDD-NOS category being somewhere in between, and scores on the ADOS also um, showing these significant differences, higher scores um, where the clinicians concluded autism. So what we did was then compared the results of what the clinicians concluded in terms of diagnosis to what we concluded um, in this blinded fashion. Um, here, um, I'm sorry, these are the classifications based on the measures um, using our reviewer diagnoses. And what you can see is that sensitivity across the ADOS and these parent report measures for autism versus not autism, meaning PDDNOS, or um, some type of autism or PDDNOS versus non-spectrum, that the measures, the ADOS and these parent report measures, are, are sensitive. So the majority of children who the clinic, or we concluded fit within uh, an autism diagnosis um, were captured by higher scores um, above the cutoff on these measures, but specificity was, pretty, was relatively poor. And again, as I started my talk saying, why did we change from DSM-4 criteria to DSM-5 criteria of an umbrella term is because this is a pretty common finding across other research studies where um, people are, have much greater agreement when it, come, when it came to autistic disorder compared to um, PDD-NOS, um, where there's, there's greater variation in terms of um, diagnostic certainty. What about our conclusions based on looking at these pieces of data 
using just the records blindly compared to clinical diagnosis. And we very nicely showed that um, we had very good agreement, um, 80% agreement uh, for these specific categories with the greatest amount of agreement, um, as you can see, that uh, across autism cases, uh, with only one case where the clinicians concluded autism, where we concluded PDDOS, um, good agreement across children who uh, were concluded to have not have an autism spectrum disorder. Um, if you combine these two categories, um, then the agreement across reviewer diagnosis and clinical diagnosis was uh, 93%. So much of the disagreement really surrounded uh, whether it should be autism or PDD&OS um, across us and the clinicians. And it'll be important to see how this um, might change with uh, ASD in the DSM-5. And then this just shows you that if you look at our blind diagnosis compared to what was concluded um, on the basis of the ADOS, that um, as other researchers have found, that the ADOS does a really nice job of agreeing um, with uh, clinical diagnosis in terms of most the the vast majority of children who we concluded met criteria for autism scored above the autism cut on the ADOS. Um, very few children who we concluded there wasn't enough evidence for autism um, met uh, criteria uh, on the ADOS. Most of the children fell below the cutoff. Um, things were not as consistent, as I said, with the, the SCQ measure, even using a lower cutoff because these were young kids. Um, so, um, so in conclusion, what have we learned? Well, from that particular study, um, I think we, we learned a lot about the importance of including a standardized measure as part of an assessment, and um, not only in terms of helping the clinician make some decisions about diagnosis, but also in, in being able to provide specific types of standard information that have been designed to be consistent with what you're looking for in terms of a diagnosis. Um, and uh, many researchers are often faced with having to identify uh, autism in cases where there may not be so much information available. Or in, in, in our Jacobson syndrome study, there was a couple of children that we didn't actually see, but I was able to gather information from other sources. And I think using uh, a standardized approach as well as um, a careful review of records can help in identifying caseness, but having the benefit of some standardized tool also seems to um, certainly increase uh, sensitivity um, and uh, consistency across definitions. Now, um, we had a subset of the children in that particular study that were followed up, and uh, diagnosis uh, in those very young children remained fairly stable, as it has in other research studies. So that was nice, and I think having those standardized tools as part of that process was very helpful. Um, implications for future studies is that um, I continue to, to work on uh, on studying and, and hoping to study more about children with these rare kinds of genetic syndromes and how that might help us to learn more about the behavioral characteristics associated with different types of syndromes and maybe t teach us a little bit more about autism or how autism from other causes might be different um, in different conditions. Um, the clinician in me also um, hopes that uh, the children uh, with a wide variety of conditions might also benefit from the types of important interventions that we find helpful for kids with autism, that this might also help other developmental conditions as well. Um, 
And I haven't given up all hope with trying to get funding for doing more um, studies where we are able to look at community practices and try to improve community practices because um, for many children, um, proper identification and um, working with highly uh, trained individuals is important for early identification and um, gateway to services. Thank you. Uh, the children with Jacobson syndrome or the uh, with autism <laughs> um, well I think there's a lot of variability um, and uh, and it's interesting because uh, you know our clinic is within the Autism Discovery Institute and so um, many of the, so this is you know I would consider a specialty clinic um, but I always ask parents when they come in so why are you here um, you know, do you have a suspicion that your child might have autism or did somebody send you here like a pediatrician or somebody else um, with a question of autism? And, um, and even given that, you know, that somebody has said that they have suspicions um, that, the, that, you know, these characteristics that your child is exhibiting might fit within this diagnosis and it, we really want to be able to, um, to be more specific and then we can make recommendations, um, it's, it's not easy. Uh, for most parents, um, and uh, and we've also spent a lot of time talking about how we go through that process of of giving parents information. Um, it's also part of the reason why it can be difficult to rely, you know, certainly on only certain pieces of information because if a parent, um, you know, isn't ready for uh, those for that type of a diagnosis or. Uh, doesn't understand what the characteristics might or might not mean, then if we only rely on the information that they provide us, particularly on a questionnaire, um, then we're likely to get you know, many more false positives. But I, but I think it's always a challenge, and I try to present it in terms of, particularly when it's complicated, and I may not, I'm pretty humble, where I, you know, I might say, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm really worried. Um, you know, one of the things that we oftentimes, we always do, particularly for younger children, is that, you, you know, I want you to bring your child back, and we will revisit this, particularly once we get them into services, to see if that seems to still make sense um, or, uh, or not, and that there's some other, you know, uh, better way to, to maybe I define the, the characteristics. Good question. All right. I have a question, actually, following up on what you just said. So in looking at um, diagnostic practices in the community and considering that maybe what you're seeing is more false positives, so um, diagnosing children with um, being autism instead of PDD-NOS or, or based on the, the previous definitions of it, if you're seeing that there's false positives and what the implications might be of that, you had mentioned just briefly that maybe they're being sent down the wrong uh, treatment path. So if you could elaborate just a little bit on those findings and what you think for future, what the implications are. Well, um, so with the, the data from the, uh, the younger children, um, it seems that there's, there, there's often disagreement with some of the measures, particularly the parent report measures, where you're actually more likely to get a false negative. Um, because in younger children, certain characteristics are not going to emerge until the children get a little bit older, um, some, of the, some of the characteristics. And some are also um, difficult to disentangle from just 
typical development or some you know sort of more general types of developmental delays. Um, I find that uh, where um, that I think that even though we know that the prevalence, you know, that there are lots of concerns about prevalence of autism and um, and what this means, and particularly as we've expanded the diagnosis, um, that in many situations there's probably an under under identification um, in in certain children in certain circumstances, um, where you know many people want to be cautious still pediatricians and uh, school psychologists and other people about, you know, um, of making this decision. Particularly, I mean, one of the biggest concerns that I have is that in the schools, they make it, they, they have to determine eligibility for an IEP using a disability category in California of autism, um, but not using a clinical definition or, or in the hands of a, of a clinical diagnosis, whereas in some other states, it has to be from an outside medical professional, et cetera. So, so many professionals are wary of making that decision, even though they can explain to the parent this isn't the same as a medical diagnosis. And so I, I worry that they may back off, and except in cases where it's, it seems really clear, as they say, um, that there is sort of this, you know, these hallmark features that everyone would agree. Um, but with younger children, these can be subtle, and in the variations that we see in terms of severity of symptoms and manifestations with development across individuals, it can be subtle and very confusing. And part of, I think, is using good tools, but also having experience not only with kids with autism, but with a whole variety of, of different disorders. So training, training is a big key. Uh, one thing that uh, I've wondered about, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this, is that one of the consequences of having a diagnosis sometimes for parents, even though it can be difficult, is that it gives you uh, kind of a personal story and an explanatory framework for your life, and it gives you a community to belong to. So my, the example that I'm most familiar with is Fragile X Syndrome, where once families become get the diagnosis, then they have other families to go to, they have other organizations to go to, and that's helpful, and that defines who you are in a way. And so I guess one of the, the things that I, I wonder about when we've gone from DSM-4 to DSM-5, particularly for the Asperger's di- disorder, is even though scientifically I understand the rationale, but whether or not, as you've worked with families, if there's been a negative consequence, it's kind of a psychological loss to families of, of oh, we were Asperger's and now we're not, and what does that really mean in terms of who our community is, what our child is, who we talk to, and those sorts, of, if there have been any kind of consequences of that. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I haven't seen anybody where um, they had that diagnosis and now they've come back for you know, a, re- a re-evaluation, and now we say, well, you know, we don't use that anymore. I'm not going to put that in your report, you know. Um, but um, but I have seen certainly over the last ten years and in, in recent in recent time I've seen a whole number of individuals where I was pretty hardcore about the DSM four where I would say you know when I look at these definitions I can see where someone else would say that this is a, an individual with Asperger's disorder but they really do technically meet criteria for autistic disorder and I'm going to make that call. Um, and I would write in my reports that, you know, that very thing, that, you know, technically this, you know, many people would describe this as an individual who sort of fits within what we think of as this term of Asperger's disorder, but, but technically speaking, 
um, they do meet criteria for autistic disorder. But clearly, these are the characteristics that we see in this in this individual. So now, um, with that, we just use this term autism spectrum disorder. Um, I talk to families about that, sort of understanding, you know, I know that it's confusing, and believe me, we're confused too, um, where, you know, what does it mean to have a child with autism? It could mean a child who has, you know, pretty significant um, uh, difficulties. They may not have spoken language. Um, and, and then other children where, you know, there are these characteristics which most people kind of understand. And then there's your child who doesn't really seem to fit within that same framework. Um, but, uh, but there are these certain kinds of characteristics, you know, that we say, these social communication difficulties, and your child is here. And, and another big question that I always get, I don't know about other people in the audience, is, so where does my child fit within the spectrum? You know, it's as if it was like a, a temperature gauge. And I'm just like, I, you know, we don't have a good way. I don't know of a good way to kind of define that. Um, but they are trying to push us in that direction in terms of severity under DSM-5. But we've had many discussions amongst our whole staff about, so how are we going to interpret this vagueness that they've given us in the DSM-5 in terms of severity? You know, uh, one versus a two versus a three. Um, you know, what, we're going to have to come up with some sort of operational definition. So I try to be sort of humble and frank with parents and say, you know, I know that this is confusing, but here, here's where your child is, and here's the kinds of services that I think are going to be helpful. And in some cases, they're already getting, uh, you know, a, a, a variety of, of, of help that I say, you know, particularly if I don't think that they fit within this criteria, I say, you know, your child's, you're doing all these great things and your child's already getting these services and they're in a social skills group or what have you, and I don't know that I would say anything different. Um, but, but I am sensitive to that, and I'm also sensitive to talking with families about, you know, you're, you might reach a point where you're going to have to talk to other people about, you know, what's wrong with your child or how you ever want to define that or, you know, what, what's different about your child. And, you know, I want you to make a, a decision about that and not feel pressure to use my words. It's, but we, we have those sorts of discussions. And I think the, the, the downside is, and we've talked about this and other people have as well about this process that, you know, sometimes they literally, you know, the family will come in, I only see them maybe three times for the parent interview and then for the assessment and then for the feedback. And it would be so nice to have, to see them again, just them, the family, um, to kind of talk about this because, you know, oftentimes they're overwhelmed and it's, it's a difficult um, situation. I always tell them they can always come back, but no one ever does. <laughs> I wish they did, except for in a re reassessment. An interesting journey. I'm curious. I know that the the um, the work on Jacobson syndrome is not funded, and we all understand that as a scientist. I'm just curious if there are plans, or if you've looked at brain development or imaging to be able to see maybe what might account for those differences that you're finding. Yeah, um, we uh, we are putting forth efforts to get some funding to do that. Um, one of the biggest challenges, as you know, is getting children to lie still in the scanner. Um, so, so I've done a lot of work over the years with, um, with young children, and, and my current study of children that are born premature, the children are as young as four, and 
Um, they, we don't sedate the children. You know, we, we train them up as to how to lie still. We, they watch a movie, those sorts of things. But, um, but I, some of these children, are, are, I think, would have a really hard time being able to, to lie still in the scanner for the amount of time that we might need. Um, but, uh, but we are certainly willing to try. Um, and I think that we have enough techniques now where we could get a lot of information from a fairly short scan um, if we did some good behavioral training. We have a mock scanner and we train children how to lie still and to not go like this and sing to the movie and things like that. Um, but we, you know, we're going to need a little bit of funding um, before we go down that road. But I think it would be really interesting because we don't know at this point. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.